Welcome to today's episode of Money Self Made. This episode is incredible. You're going to love it. We are featuring a cryptocurrency expert and lawyer, Andy Beal, the creator of 30,000 Feet. We dive into everything related from cryptocurrency, including what's the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, to how to buy your first Bitcoin if you haven't yet, and how to profit in something called decentralized finance or DeFi. It is everything you've ever wanted to know about cryptocurrency, but we're afraid to ask. And as always, let me know what you think of this episode and subscribe if you haven't yet. Without further ado, please help me welcome Andy Beal of 30,000 Feet. Welcome, Andy. How are you doing Thanks for having me, Elise. Yeah, Good. of course. Welcome. Um, so I'm really excited for this show because I posted in the group that you are coming and you got a ton of interest and questions. So I have some audience questions for you today. But before we dive into that, I just kind of would love to chat with you a little bit about who you are as a person, what your background is. And also, I just have to ask, because I think what you're doing right now is so extremely cool. So where are you located at the moment? You're currently in Phoenix, Arizona. You have been digital nomading across the United States for quarantine. Is that right? We have for the last seven months. Yep. Nice. That is yep. extremely so, cool. Phoenix, Santa Fe, Austin, New Orleans, Kansas City. Boulder, Vegas, San Diego, started in San Francisco. Yeah, so we're going to keep going. I love it. And you're spending like a month a month in each place. Is that right? Yeah, four to six weeks in each spot. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, and we, got to, we, got to, we, got to, we got to visit uh, visit you guys last month. Yeah, yes, that's how we conjured up this, uh, this yeah. plan right here. But I mean, I'm so honored to have you in. Great. And what is your favorite place you've traveled all year on your digital nomad trip? Favorite place? San Diego, Austin, Phoenix. We like we like warm, warm sunny weather. Yes, I'm with you on yeah. that. Maybe we'll come visit you in Phoenix, though. So. Yeah. All right. Well, where would you say um, this kind of like interest began and, and what has your journey been to get here? Sure. So I took a very unconventional you know, path, I think, to, to tech. Fell into law school um, in 2009. Uh, that you know, A lot of people were going to grad school in 2009 because uh, the job market wasn't stellar. Uh, and, I, and I went thinking that I was going to do entertainment law and I would, I would you know, work with artists in that capacity. So ended up in law school and, and really liked law school, but um, quickly learned that entertainment law was not uh, the, the, the career path that I wanted and decided I wanted to start working with uh, early stage tech entrepreneurs. And so graduated law school, just started hanging around with some entrepreneurs that were doing you know, crypto stuff in, in Los Angeles on the west side of LA, so Santa Monica and Venice. And it was great because you know, the, the market there wasn't large enough to warrant like attorneys really paying attention. And I was fresh out of law school and had no experience and everybody was about my age. So I was like, wow, this is great. I have all these, you know, all these potential clients I can work with and no other lawyers really paying attention to this, at least you know, at, at the time. Uh, and so it was a great opportunity for me as someone who was young and had no experience to sort of, you know, kind of learn on the job. You usually don't get that opportunity. I was very fortunate to be able to learn on the on the job. And um, and over the course of a couple of years, just, you know, um, obviously, you know, became much more familiar with the technology, but started working with larger and larger companies. Um, and so, you know, did corporate and regulatory work for crypto. And, and so for the last five years have been working with not only uh you know, companies that are sort of crypto native, but also working with banks and fintechs that are um, getting into this space and, and supporting digital assets. So I'm going to start with some really beginner questions for you because a lot of people don't sure. know what this is. So let's start at square one, especially someone that's just dropping in. What is DeFi? What is decentralized finance? I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a step back because uh, we need to work our way to DeFi. Okay. So 
DeFi is um, you know a couple a couple moves in, and so let's let's start at the very let's start at the very beginning. And 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 um, I like to go way back, like to the '60s, history of the internet, and and establish a foundation. So, um, and I've done this a few times, so uh, hopefully it hopefully it lands. Um, if not, ask me some follow up questions, and we can we can unpack it a little bit more. So, I like to start out with sort of why blockchains are so important first. So go all the way back to the '60s, beginning of the internet. Uh, it started as a U.S. Defense Department kind of pilot program, right? There were four universities, two on the East Coast, two on the West Coast, and there they were tasked with building a new communication network that could survive a nuclear attack. That was the that was the the motivation for you know creating the what we now know as the internet. Um, and so these four universities and and um, UCLA and I believe Stanford uh, were the two on the West Coast. Each of them had a computer. And their mission was to figure out a way to, you know, send messages back and forth, uh, you know, these, these machines. And that really, you know, basic crude sort of four node network has grown into over the last, you know, 50 years, 60 years, right into the internet as we know it, uh, know it today. Um, but, you know, it worked pretty much the same way back then as it does now. And, and it, all it does, and this is a gross oversimplification, but it takes information in one location, puts it in a little digital envelope called a data packet, and then moves it to another location, right? So server to computer, computer to computer, right? Um, and the way it does that is by copying the information in one location and then putting it in that envelope and sending it across, right? So the internet moves data around by essentially copying and pasting it into these, into these digital envelopes, right? And so this is why 100% of what is online today or what was online pre-2009 and, and, and you know, Bitcoin and blockchain was content. So 100% of the internet is, is five things. It's text, audio, video, um, files, and images, right? And I've, I've, I've written about this in my newsletter. Um, and, and, and the value of all those things is that they can be consumed. The value of content is that you can consume it. You can watch it, read it, listen to it. Um, and there's a reason why the internet only has content on it. And it's because it copies and pastes information and moves it around, which is great for content because the, value, the, the purpose of content is that you are distributing it out to as many people as possible, right? So the internet and content are, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful marriage, right? Uh, but there's a, there's a reason why things like money and financial assets aren't, aren't natively online today. And, it, and the, same reason why is, is, uh, the same reason why the internet's not good for finance is the reason why it's great for, for content. So if you were copying and pasting money that you had put online, you would immediately destroy the value of it because you're increasing the supply, right? And money, particularly, you know, like currency has value because it is scarce, right? If you had an infinite supply of dollars, the value of the dollar would be zero. Um, so financial assets in particular have value in large part because they're scarce. And so the internet is this amazing, you know, information sharing network, communication network, but the way that it does that is by copying and pasting information and moving it around. So if you put financial assets online, the internet is going to very quickly destroy the value of those assets. So this was a technological shortcoming or limitation that the internet had. Um, and blockchains actually fill that gap. They solve that problem. So when, you, when, when people ask, 
what problem does blockchain solve? It's not your problem. It's not even a company's problem. It primarily solves the internet's problem. And the internet's problem was that it couldn't uh, maintain the scarcity of inf digital information. And so enter blockchain, Bitcoin in 2009. Why, how does this change you know, the internet? So now um, we have a, a ledger or an accounting system that sits on top of the internet. And it does two things really well. Blockchains manage the total supply of something, how many there are. So for Bitcoin, that's 21 million. And then they also keep track of who owns what at a particular time. So if anybody's listening or watching with, you know, has, has a finance or accounting background, you'll know that, you know, any business maintains a, a ledger, right? Money coming in, money going out. You want to, you want a snapshot of what you have at a particular time and blockchains do that, but they do it for the internet. So blockchains are, are put differently, the accounting layer or the accounting system for the internet. So that was 2009. And then from 2009 to about 2015, the, inter the, the industry, the crypto blockchain industry was really focused on building the most robust sort of a basic you know, foundational accounting layer. So this is Bitcoin. This is a number of other blockchains that were you know, derivatives of Bitcoin. And then in 2015, Ethereum uh, was introduced and Ethereum much more robust um, you know, multi-asset ledger, multi-asset blockchain, right? So Bitcoin, just Bitcoin, but Ethereum can support more than one asset at the same time. And that, that really sort of set the stage for what we're going to talk about shortly, which is DeFi. So, um, so if you're, if, if, if listeners and viewers are trying to sort of visualize, you know, what this looks like, right? You have the internet as sort of your, your baseline, and then you have blockchains immediately sitting, sitting directly on top of that. And then what happened in the subsequent years, so I think 2016, 2017, the industry thought, okay, we now have these ledgers for the internet that we can start putting things on, representing things on. Uh, we probably need a standard way of representing those assets that we're putting on blockchain. So this is where token standards, things like ERC-20 and ERC-721, which are uh, the vast majority of cryptocurrencies are the ERC-20 standard and uh, the vast majority of uh, NFTs which has become a, a hot topic uh, recently. The vast majority of NFTs are ERC-721 tokens. So those are like unique, truly unique, one-of-a-kind tokens. Um, and so 2016, 2017 was about, you know, establishing those standards for putting assets on, on blockchains. And then from 2017 to, to now, the, you know, the engineering focus has been on what is commonly referred to as DeFi. So DeFi is and kind of the way I like to describe it is um, uh, you have go back to sort of what we were just talking about. So you have your blockchains on the you know, on your foundational layer. Now we're putting assets on top, but now we want to we want those assets to do things, right? We want to we want to we want to engage in financial transactions with those assets, just like we would engage in financial transactions with our our dollars, our cash. And the interesting thing about money now being online and existing as, as software is that just like any other type of data, we can, we can program it, right? That's what software is great at, right? We can program its, its behavior. And so um, DeFi is sort of the, the evolution of, um, you know, programming our, our money or programming our financial assets. So um, put differently, and I think this is, let's sort of break down what a, what a, we'll break down what a basic, you know, financial arrangement looks like, right? So a financial arrangement is a combination of two things. One is 
assets, right? You have usually dollars, right? Currency, or, you know, it could be something like a, a stock or a, or a bond or a commodity, right? And then you have the terms and conditions that dictate that arrangement, right? So if you're paying for gas, the term, the term condition is that it's the price per gallon and you have to pay before you start pumping into your gas tank, right? So really simple, really simple financial arrangement, but it's still a combination of assets, dollars, right? In this case, a credit card, right? And then the price per gallon and when I have to pay. Um, something slightly more complicated is when you go get a loan from a bank to buy a house, right? I'm borrowing dollars. That's the asset part. And the term and condition is the, the interest rate I have to pay on that loan, right? On, on that mortgage. Um, and when I have to pay it back, well, I pay it back every month. I pay it back every month for 30 years or 15 years or 10 years, whatever the duration of your, your mortgage is. Um, so anyway, you can take any financial arrangement and break it up into those two things, assets and terms and conditions. So blockchains pre-DeFi had, had a way to represent just about any asset we wanted to, right? We have token standards. Now we can, we can, you know, we can deploy a smart contract and a token on a blockchain that represents dollars, gold, you know, Apple stock, whatever you want, right? Including cryptocurrencies, right? Which are, which are just sort of native, native to blockchains. Um, DeFi solves for the terms and conditions part of a financial arrangement. And, and DeFi is creating templates or standards for the most common financial arrangements. So think about swapping one asset for another, right? I have Ethereum in one hand and I want to get, you know, um, another cryptocurrency uh, in return, right? There are DeFi protocols that are really simply sort of acting like a vending machine. I put in one thing, I get something else out. Really easy, right? This is something like uh, Uniswap or, or, or SushiSwap. Um, and then you have something, you have, you have protocols that are a little bit more complicated for lending arrangements. So I can borrow money from uh, the, I can borrow money from the DeFi protocol. Um, and, and to do that, I have to, you know, deposit some collateral and then I have to pay back that, pay back that loan to get my collateral out. Right. But it's a really simple arrangement and the DeFi protocol, which is really just a collection of smart contracts. Um, so think like little software programs living on the blockchain. Right. But those, those little software programs living on the blockchain do really specific things, right? They lend money out and hold collateral while the money's outstanding. They will swap one asset for another. Right. Um, so um, you know, I guess to summarize all that, right, DeFi is focused on the terms and conditions side of, the, of any financial arrangement, and, and they, are, um, they are creating standards or templates for the most common, you know, financial, financial transactions. So happy to dive, happy to dive deeper into, into any of that. Sorry, I know that was a, that was a long monologue. I can't tell you how many people wanted that when I let them know you're coming on the show. Um, so yeah, how do you see DeFi or decentralized finance changing our financial system in the future? Great question. And I think uh, it's what a lot of, this is, this is the, I think this is the realization that a lot of large financial institutions are having like right now is that um, there is financial infrastructure now that exists on top of the internet. So this is blockchains, token standards, DeFi protocols, right? All the things that, all the things that we just walked through. And that is very different than the financial infrastructure that banks sit on top of today, right? So we have, you know, 50 year old financial infrastructure, mainframe computers, right? That banks have been operating on for decades. And because the financial system was built before the internet existed, 
all of the hardware and infrastructure is offline, right? And the financial industry really leverages the internet today, or certainly did pre-2009, um, as a faster messaging layer. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of unpack that a little bit, right? So when you enter your credit card number on you know, the iTunes store or Amazon, when you're checking out, you're not actually sending money to, to Apple or Amazon by entering in your number and your expiration date, you know, and your CBC code. What you're doing is just you entering that information is giving permission to the merchant's bank to request that amount of money from your bank, but the banks settle that transaction offline afterwards on your behalf. And you, your act of providing that credit card information through the checkout portal is just, is just your, you granting permission, right? It's a message that you send to a, to the bank that says, Hey, you can take money out of my account, but the bank is, is moving the money later. So, um, and it, you know, it works the same right for, on, for online banking, right? You know, we were able to, we're able to use the internet to, to see our accounts, our balances, our portfolio and trade, right? But when we're actually moving, when we're actually transferring funds, right? Um, or we're buying a stock, for example, um, you're not actually moving, money's not moving over the internet, right? Um, we're just moving messages about what to do with our money because our money lives offline and the banks and all the, the banks and other intermediaries are managing that flow for us. So that's the old paradigm, right? 50 year old financial infrastructure that was built before the internet. And then everyone now using the internet as a faster messaging layer about what to do with money. So now for the last decade, for the last 10 years, we, the industry has built new financial infrastructure on top of the internet. So it, so what we've done over the last decade is we've turned the internet from a faster messaging layer into a transactional layer, because now that we have the ability to put money and other assets on the internet, now we can use the internet to move it around, not just move messages around. We can actually move the assets around. So that is, I mean, that's the, that's the, that is the paradigm shift that blockchains alone deliver, right? D DeFi takes it a step further, right? It, it sort of, it, it pours gasoline on the, on the fire. So now we, now we've got, you know, it, it, it um, now the paradigm shift is going to be much bigger and much faster. So once we're able, once we now, once we can use the internet as a faster transactional layer, um, DeFi is helping us uh, sort of program what we want to do with those assets that we have on blockchains, right? Um, and so I, I think, I honestly think about DeFi as um, additional financial infrastructure. And what I suspect will happen is that, you know, the large exchanges like Coinbase, the large banks, I don't care if you're, you know, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, Bank of America, whoever, at some point, all of those institutions will sit on top of DeFi protocols. They will integrate into them and they will use them just like they use their existing bank, uh, existing financial infrastructure today. And it will probably happen in waves, right? Your, your crypto native companies like exchanges will integrate first because this is their backyard, right? This is their world. They're more comfortable with it. They understand the value proposition. They're comfortable with the risk or more comfortable with the risk. Fintechs like PayPal and Square and others will probably be the second wave of large financial institutions that start adopting DeFi. And then the third wave is going to be banks, um, just because they, uh, you know, they, they historically 
adopt new technology slower. Um, and, you know, they are, uh, they're subject to more regulation that, that quite frankly, you know, requires them to move a little bit slower. So I guess very, very sort of long-term macro, like that's kind of what um, certainly I see, I see happening. But in, in a decade or let's say 10 or 15 years, right, DeFi will just be, um, DeFi will be part of the global financial infrastructure that most financial institutions sit on top of and, and leverage every day. As an individual, we probably won't see it or feel it, right? Because it's it's one step removed from us, right? Um, you know, we we use large platforms to buy and sell and trade and pay, um, and and DeFi is largely you know infrastructure, right? So um, just like just like we as banking customers don't directly interface with like bank infrastructure today, right? The banks abstract that away from us, right? We're we're, we're one one step removed from that. Um, I expect the same sort of relationship with, with DeFi um, in the years to come. Why is DeFi different than Bitcoin, would you say? The difference between Bitcoin and DeFi is the difference between a dollar and a vending machine, right? So I hope oh, that's a good analogy. That's a great so, analogy. So I guess unpacking that a little bit, right? Cryptocurrency is the dollar that you're putting in the, the vending machine that represents DeFi, right? Except the vending machine can be a, you know, this... In DeFi, right, the vending machines don't just have bottles of soda and bags of chips and lifesavers in them, right? Um, I'm dating myself with the lifesavers reference, but um, but instead, right, they're 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 for you have vending machines. You know, that, that's sort of a just a way to visualize, right, what a what a DeFi protocol is, right? It's just like a vending machine that lives on a lives on the blockchain, and the vending machine each one does something different, right? One you know one vending machine I can put in a, a one type of cryptocurrency and I can get out another cryptocurrency of equivalent value, right? So I, again, I, uh, I mentioned Unis, something like Uniswap, right? Um, so very simply, right? It's just a way for me to exchange my, my tokens. Um, but you have more complicated DeFi protocols that allow me to borrow money or lend money. Um, some of them allow me to um, create a derivative of something else. Um, so there are, there are all sorts of DeFi protocols for all sorts of financial arrangements, some much more complicated than, than, than others. Um, but I think the best way to think about it is, uh, it's a vending machine, right? The vending machine only does a, a certain thing, right? You can't, you can't turn it into to something else that it wasn't built. Uh, it wasn't built to do. Um, and that's because DeFi protocols at the end of the day are just software, right? Software was written to do very specific things. It executes as it's like it's supposed to. And, um, and that's what, you know, that you interact with it for that purpose. So hopefully that was a, a helpful, a helpful analogy. It was great. I love it. That is super helpful. Thank you. This is like what I've been wanting everyone to tell me uh, and like broken down, explain it like in five terms. So I appreciate it. I guess what I am curious about is what do you think are some of the most interesting projects in DeFi right now? Great question. There are, there's a, an enormous amount of innovation happening and I'm interested in, in all of it. Um, you know, I think some of the some of the sort of foundational or like pillar, you know, DeFi projects are things like MakerDAO, uh, you know, which was is sort of the the poster child for for DeFi. Um, projects like Uniswap, the largest um, uh, automated market maker, or AMM, um, and lending platforms like uh, Compound and Aave, also really interesting. Um, and there's a, there are many, 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 many more, um, that are trying to improve, you know, the, the, you know, the, 
some of those um, some of those concepts I mentioned, or they're creating you know something net new, right? That no one's built a, a protocol or a standard for yet. Um, I think what's interesting about DeFi protocols is that um, depending on who you are and how you got introduced to DeFi, um, you're either thinking about it as like a, a consumer facing app that you use, right? Or you're thinking about it as infrastructure because at the end of the day, it's just, you know, they're all, they're all smart, you know, one or more smart contracts on a blockchain. Um, I have, and, and I, I used to think about them as both things, right? It was something that I could interact with, you know, um, directly or you know, through a, through a user interface or a dashboard. And I also thought about it as infrastructure that larger companies would use at some point. But um, recently, as DeFi protocols have gotten more popular and more use and more volume, um, I actually think about them as companies or organizations now, even though they are really at the core, just smart contracts on a blockchain. They're just technology. They're just a protocol, right? Um, you know, there's not, there's, not a, there's not a formal company sort of operating Uniswap, you know, running Uniswap day to day, right? Uh, the smart contract runs itself. It, it's, it operates autonomously. Um, um, but the reason I think about them as organizations or companies now is because they generate so much revenue. So these DeFi protocols, just like any other business, um, sometimes take a small fee for the service that they provide, right? So you think about going to a vending machine, right? You put in your dollar, you get a bag of chips out, right? Well, the vending machine takes your it takes your 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 dollar, right? And so it it generates revenue autonomously, right? There's not there's not a human in the vending machine, you know, sort of taking your money and giving you the bag of chips, right? Um, so you can kind of think about DeFi protocols the same way, except the you know their arrangements are just slightly more complicated. But when you you know, for example, put in one cryptocurrency and you want to swap it for another one, um, the protocol takes a little fee from that transaction, and that's how it makes money. Um, but DeFi protocols now are making a lot, a lot of money. So to put it in, just to, to sort of put it in scale, something like Uniswap, right, which is a very simple, um, you know, decentralized exchange where you're swapping one token for another, um, makes over a hundred million, generates over a hundred million dollars in in revenue in in trade fees every month. So multiply that by twelve, right? So it's you know, let's say it's a hundred million dollars a month, right? That's one point two billion dollars in fee revenue a year. And like, we're talking about like just smart contracts, right? Like the protocol itself makes that much money. Um, and, and the cool thing is that, you know, you, Elise or me can, uh, we can, we can provide the liquidity to those, to, to, to a protocol like Uniswap, right? So when someone's swapping their token, right? It, to go back to the, the vending machine analogy, it's like, um, it's like letting anybody stock the vending machine, right? So if you have, you know, a box of Cheetos, you can go in and stock the vending machine and you can get the dollar if someone buys your bag, right? So that's how, that's how something like Uniswap works, right? You are the users, the other users are providing the, the, the liquidity, the assets into the protocol. And then someone else who wants it is coming along and swapping, right? Um, but you, you get a pro rata piece of those transaction fees if you are providing, you know, the inventory or liquidity to those protocols just like you would get the dollar if someone bought your bag of chips out of the vending machine, right? So um, it's a it's 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 going to totally. The reason this is so fascinating is because um, if you compare it to like how a bank works today, right? Like you put your you deposit money into a bank, and then the bank 
takes that money and loans it out in the form of credit cards or mortgages or small business loans or car loans or whatever, right? They lend that money out so that they could earn interest on it. Um, and, and they, you know, the bank exclusively manages sort of that function, right? You don't get to participate in the lending of your money. The bank does that for you. And as everyone knows now, right, interest rates are so low, like you really don't make any money on that, right? Banks are keeping all of that because interest rates are so low. So, um, the, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing about DeFi and sort of the shift, right, is that, okay, now we are replacing the bank with one or more smart contracts on a blockchain, and you are able to directly lend out your assets or put your assets to work, right? The same way that you would at a bank, except now there's really no one sitting between you and the borrower, right? Um, uh, so it's it totally changes the, you know, the the uh, the customer uh, sort of engagement model, right? Um, and I think you know any any institution whose business model has been based on like, you know holding trust, right? Where you're, you're holding money for people and then, you know, doing something with the generator turn, right? That business model is at risk because we now have DeFi protocols and smart contracts that can perform that same function. Uh, but they do it, you know, for the running on the internet, right? Uh, so there's, there's a, we now have like a, a global utility that, that does it pretty much for free. Right. Um, so it, 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 uh, long-term it, it definitely threatens the, you know, the value proposition and competitive advantage of, uh, of a lot of our financial institutions who we trust really just to hold our money. Like how so? How would you say? What does that look like? If you've, if you've, if anyone has experimented with, you know, some of the DeFi projects today, right? Um, you know, you, it, it's sort of a two-step process. One, you need a, you need a wallet. So most, most people will use something like uh, MetaMask, which is a, a browser wallet. So it's just a Chrome, a Chrome plugin. So you have a wallet in your browser. And when you visit a, you know, one of the uh, websites for a DeFi project, right? So you say you go to, you know, MakerDAO.com or Compound.Finance or Uniswap.io. Um, you are, you, when you get to that webpage, you connect your browser wallet to that webpage. And that's what allows you to sort of, uh, that's what allows you to, to interact with it and, and start putting your assets to, to work there. Um, so kind of like, you know, rolling up to a vending machine and, you know, pulling out your, your credit card, right? So pulling it, so your credit card, the, you know, your, your wallet and your, you know, the, the, the user interface is the, is sort of the vending machine, you know, glass, right? Um, so in that, in that scenario, right? Like you're holding all of your own money, right? It, it, it's controlled by your wallet, your browser wallet. So you have possession over it, which is, which is, you know, sort of like, it's like cash, right? You holding cash in your pocket. Um, but now you are able to you are able to contribute your money directly into a pool that you know uh, it's you know it's being lent out to other people who want to borrow it, for example, right? And you and 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 they're going to pay you um, you know interest for getting to use your your money. So you actually have direct interaction with that lending arrangement, right? Um, as opposed to sort of the way it works today, right? Where you just deposit your money into a bank blindly and then without you really knowing the bank engages in, you know, you have no idea where that money goes, right? The second you deposit money in a bank, it's getting lent out to someone else, right? Because it's not capital efficient for money to sit still, right? Money needs to be moving, put to work, right? So, you know, banks don't, banks don't have 100% of, of, you know, your, your, your deposits, uh, but they have enough to satisfy 
daily withdrawals, right? They have enough to satisfy people going to an ATM or going into a bank and pulling money out, right? Um, but the rest of it is is put to work. Um, and um, so, so, you know, DeFi is basically just removing that intermediary from that arrangement and allowing you to engage directly in those in those financial, you know, transactions. In this case, it was a lending arrangement, right? Where you're lending direct, you know, lending directly to someone through a, through a DeFi protocol. So it just, it gives the individual so much more autonomy and power over what they're doing with their, with their money. Um, and it makes it, it makes the whole process so much more transparent. Like you get to see what's happening. You see money going in, you see money being borrowed, you see interest being paid back. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, you're almost acting like the banker in, in these situations. Yeah. Very cool. I love it. Um, so tell me about 30,000 feet and how that came to be in terms of how you became really passionate about this topic and, and how you've be, now become an influencer in the space. 30,000 feet, you know, is again, uh, you know, the newsletter I started this year. Why did you name it 30,000 feet, by the way? 30,000 feet because um, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about um, sort of like macro themes in the industry. So like talking about things from a 30,000 foot view. So that, that's sort of, that's one of my themes across all the, all the issues. I've enjoyed writing since, um, since law school. Um, I became a much better writer in law school because it was, it, it was required of me. Um, and I became a much better writer as an attorney as well. Um, because it, you know, that's what my, because the job demands you being a, a good writer. Um, and so I've always liked it. Um, but writing takes time and writing takes, uh, discipline. And it, you know, if you are, if you have a demanding job and you're busy, you know, it's, it's, it was hard to prioritize, you know, writing in the evenings or on the weekends. Right. Um, and eventually I, you know, I, I just sort of told myself, listen, like, I've been working in this industry for eight years. I have a ton of ideas. You know, I feel like I have some perspective. Um, you know, I've, I've seen how things have evolved and I, I have, I at least have my own, you know, opinion about where things are going and I would love to share that. Um, but I, I, I need to make the time to do it. I need to prioritize it. And um, I need to get comfortable sharing my ideas. I think that was, that was, that was a, a hard thing. Right. Uh, I think like many people I suffered from, you know, imposter syndrome, right? Like, you know, what makes me, what makes my opinion better than someone else's, right? Um, you know, do I really understand this topic as well as I think I do? Um, and that that self-doubt and imposter syndrome, I think, held me back from putting more of my views out there. And eventually, I just sort of got comfortable with that. And I said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want that fear to dictate my actions. Um, and I've wanted to do this for a while. So, you know, what the hell with it? Let's just, let's, let's, let's just do it, right? Um, so, and I, you know, fortunately, I've got a great, you know, group of people and friends and, you know, colleagues and, and community in this industry, right, that were like very supportive. Um, so, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten like great feedback, which, you know, makes you feel more comfortable putting more views out there. And, and um, so, you know, that has been, that has been wonderful. Um, but yeah, you know, my, my goal is, uh, my goal when I started was to do, you know, one issue a week for a year. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll do 50 plus and, um, and see where, uh, you know, see where we are in a, in a year, but, um, it's, it's absolutely been the highlight of, of 2021 for me. Um, I have, I have, um, what I found is like writing makes, and it's particularly my, my kind of writing where I'm really like trying to teach these topics to, to people. Um, it forces me to really understand it myself and come up with great analogies, you know? So, 
you know, without 30,000 feet, I wouldn't be talking about, you know, vending machines and, and other things, right? Those are all, those are all things that came up in the, in, in the writing process that I thought were good mechanisms for describing some of this stuff. I'm so glad that you did overcome that imposter syndrome. I know how that feels, but your writing really is incredible. And I'm loving the newsletter so far, especially I think it was issue seven, where you talked just sort of about the crypto vulnerability that you experienced. That was compelling and interesting. And I learned a bunch of things I didn't know about. Hack, the hack, the hack issue. Yeah. Thank you for reading that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hope everyone reads that because, um, you know, personal security, like data, data security, I, you know, we're, we're so, we're so so many of us are very lax with, you know, our passwords and, and, you know, how we, how we secure our phones and devices and um, uh, working in crypto has taught me to pay a lot of attention to that because hacks are so prevalent. Um, um, but yeah, my, you know, my, my story was, um, was also just pretty, pretty scary. Um, so, um, so yeah, wanted to write about that as sort of a cautionary tale to, to, to hopefully encourage others to, take the steps that I, I was not taking back then. I agree. And this is a question I get a lot from Bitcoiners is they want to get Bitcoin. They don't know how you tell them to open a wallet, but sometimes they need that like step-by-step. Similarly with DeFi, what is a way to kind of get in there, learn about it, and then also protect yourself in the process as you're experimenting? Couple, couple, couple steps, right? So if you're just interested in getting into, uh, if you're just interested in, you know, buying crypto and experimenting with it, um, I think the easiest the easiest venue for buying something like Bitcoin, right, is through the Cash app. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of people already have this app on their phone. Um, you know, if you already if you have your you know your bank account or your debit card already already you know linked to that account, you can buy you know Bitcoin directly through the through the app. And they also Cash or Square just launched um, the ability this week, I believe, to um, to uh, send Bitcoin peer to peer. So you can send it to other people's cash tag, uh, you know, handles. Um, so you can, you know, you can transfer small amounts uh, to your friends and, and experiment with that. Um, if you're interested in not just buying, but also uh, not just buying Bitcoin, but also maybe buying some other types of cryptocurrencies or trading, um, you know, um, exchanges like Coinbase or Gemini or Kraken um, are all places that offer a similar, uh, a similar experience. And they all have mobile apps too that, you know, that, that, that you can do, that you can use. Um, for DeFi, um, some of the exchanges, so the three I just mentioned, all will trade uh, or allow you to buy and sell uh, some of the DeFi tokens, right? So each, each one of the protocols I talked about has its own token. So Uniswap has a token, Compound has a token, MakerDAO has a token. Uh, a lot of those tokens are available to buy on the exchange, but you're really not experimenting with DeFi. You're just buying and holding the, the token as an, as an investment, right? Um, so if you really want to experiment with some of these protocols, some of these you know, quote unquote vetting machines, as I've been describing them as, um, you need to, um, you know, use, use Chrome, download, download MetaMask, the, the wallet. Um, and you'll need, and uh, you'll need some amount of Ethereum. So you can buy, you can buy Ethereum through one of the, through one of the, uh, uh, Ethereum or a, or a stable coin actually. So like a U.S. dollar, uh, peg token. Um, so if you buy those on an exchange and then you can transfer it to your MetaMask wallet, I think you're quickly realizing in how many steps I'm having to go through here, right? That like DeFi is sort of DeFi is a couple hops away removed from someone who has, you know, cash in their hand or, or who has money in a bank account. Right. So you need to get your dollars into the crypto ecosystem first. And then once you do, once you have Ethereum or a stable coin or some other token, then you can transfer it to your MetaMask wallet. And there are a couple other wallets too you can use. Um, and then once you have it in your MetaMask wallet, then 
you can you know visit all of these um, websites that allow you to interact with these DeFi protocols. So you can you can experiment with lending and borrowing and swapping one token for another and things like that. One obvious, one very easy and obvious thing to do is to um, always enable two-factor authentication on your phone. Um, so that that's the um, that's you know the, that's the QR code that you scan with your you know your your Google Authenticator app, for example, right? That gives you the gives you the the six-digit pin code that changes every every sixty seconds, right? Um, so every app, every investing app or exchange um, will enable you to turn on two-factor authentication. So when when you log in, not only are you typing in your username and and password. But you're also you also have to type in that six digit code that's on your that's on your smartphone right uh, in your in your in your Google Authenticator or Google Auth app um, to get in right, and that 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 is one level of, of protection that you know will uh, will thwart most uh, you know most um, sort of illicit actors right uh, because if they don't have your mobile device, then they they don't have your your six digit pin code and you know even if they have your username and password it's harder to get into your account so um so I think that that is the easiest and sort of most obvious step that that people can take um you know if you are uh, there are there are several more more sophisticated things that you can do that um uh you know happy to share you know more um separately if you know folks want to reach out or you can even you know include a link um to the to the to the hack uh, issue in the in the notes to the video um, where I talk about some other things. This is a narrative that you know the media in particular like loves to you know keep putting out there. Um, you know, crypto is you know only used by criminals and it's great for money laundering. You know, both none of those things are actually are actually true. Um, but because money is now you know sort of digital, right? Just like any other piece of digital information, right? Like your credit card number, right? Um, it's just like things like Bitcoins and, and, and other cryptocurrency, right? Or, you know, it's the same thing, right? It's just code. Um, they can be, they can, they can be compromised and, and stolen. And so the same way you protect your data is the same way that you need to protect your, um, you know, your, your cryptocurrency. Um, so yes, one scary thing that happens, unfortunately, all too often is um, uh, hackers can either go into, a, 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 you know, the store of your carrier, right? AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon, whatever. Or they can call, and it usually sometimes it happen, happens over the phone where they just call customer support of those same carriers. And at that point, right, they know your name. They know, they, they probably know you have crypto, right? And so, so, you know, they obviously target people that work in the industry who have it on their, you know, LinkedIn page or something, right? It's pretty easy to tell who works, who works where. Um, and then through brute force, right, through, you know, calling multiple times, or they may know somebody, they may have a friend or a accomplice that works at the cell phone store they will get access to your account. And once they get into your account, they can, uh, the, 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 the carrier, the customer support people can actually transfer your phone number over to another device. And this is, it's, this is a, you know, in most cases, phone porting is, is fine. It's totally benign, right? Because you're just, you got a new phone, you want to transfer your number over to that new phone. That's how it usually happens. Where it, the problem is when the, you know, the carrier is transferring your number over to the hacker's phone and that's unauthorized by you, right? Which is what happened in my case a couple of times. And so once they have your phone number, then they can, they can wreak a lot of, of havoc, right? Um, and so one, one, you know, one, um, you know, one thing they do once they have your phone number is they will try and get access to your email account. And so they'll go, they'll go to, you know, gmail.com, they'll click forgot password, what is G, what is what does Gmail do when you click forgot password? Well, it sends a pin code to your phone so that you can reset your password. 
The problem is that now the hacker has your phone number, so they get the text from Gmail and they reset your password with the pin code. And all this happens without you knowing. And now that you don't have a cell phone, right? Um, you know, you're you're fairly handicapped without a cell phone, right? Like most people don't have access to a landline, right? Or if you're traveling, right? Cell phones. I was I was so thankful when I did it. I, I would happen to be at a hotel, and so I could use the phone in my in my hotel room, um, you know, to, to 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 call my carrier and get it figured out. But um, anyway, so yeah, uh, definitely something people need to be aware of. Um, not something I think you know um, everybody needs to be really paranoid about, but. Um, you know, it is it is good to be aware that things like this happen, and this is why two factor authentication is so important. What would you say is the the media perception of things like DeFi and cryptocurrency versus the reality that you're seeing day to day working in the industry? Do they have anything wrong? Are they are they kind of sensationalizing anything, or would you say it's kind of an accurate um, perception? You know, to their credit, right? A lot of this stuff is can be complicated, right? Some of the subject matter is pretty dense. It is technical. You do need a good foundation to really understand it. Um, and so, you know, if you are a, if you are someone in the media who is, you know, tasked, let's, you know, if you have a broad mandate, right. And you're covering a lot of different things, it's hard to, it's hard to focus on one thing for weeks or months and really get deep into it and, you know, consume all the nuances. Right. Um, so if you're just taking a very, you know, sort of cursory sort of high level flyby of, you know, an industry or a topic, you are naturally going to gravitate towards things that are either a easy to understand or B sensational. Um, usually both, right? And so things like, you know, Bitcoins have been used by, you know, um, uh, you know, terrorist organizations, for example, right, to raise money is one, easy to understand, and two, very sensational, right? Um, Bitcoin is used by money launderers to, to move money, you know, um, anonymously, very easy to understand, very sensational, right? Um, the reality is that, you know, those that those things really don't happen, and they happen way less with Bitcoin than they happen with cash, for example, right? Um, but those are some of the those are some of the narratives that I think are easy to sort of fall victim to because they are they grab your attention. It involves you know a, a sort of highly political polarizing topic, and then a, a brand new technology like Bitcoin, right? That's really hot and is getting a lot of attention. And you combine those two things, and you know that that makes for a lot of a lot of clicks and a lot of a lot of eyeballs. Um, so, which is why you've seen the media largely gravitate to the price of Bitcoin and the price of cryptocurrencies, right? Prices are easy to understand. And when things keep going up, it makes for great sensational content, right? Um, so, you know, the media has usually focuses on, on, on the price of cryptocurrency and, you know, very, very rarely sort of unpacks and explains the value proposition of this stuff or why it's important or the transformational, you know, power that it, that it has, because those are, those are harder. Those are one, those are harder articles to write. They require more research and some people do it. I mean, some people do it extremely well, right? There are, there are, there are unbelievable journalists. I, I, I need to say this unbelievable journalists that cover this space who do nothing but focus on crypto and they really understand the, the technology. They understand the nuances. They understand the the market and the dynamics. Um, and you know, that's where I would direct anyone to go to get, you know, great coverage um, over this industry. But if you're just picking up the newspaper, you know, or watching sort of mainstream media, you're going to get the easiest to understand sort of most sensational topics, because that's what 
that's what those networks or, you know, or journalists are, are capable of covering with the time that they, that they have, right? Do you have any media sources that you look to for your information and this kind of stuff, aside, of course, from your very great newsletter, which I am loving? Coindesk is a great, I'll call sort of, you know, general overview of what's happening in the industry, you know, on a daily basis. You can think of Coindesk as the CNN of, you know, crypto, blockchain and crypto. Um, there are other websites like uh, The Block crypto that do um you know more sort of in-depth research coverage over certain things and the block's great some of the content's free some of it's behind a paywall uh, and then you have podcasts like unchained uh by laura shin um so it's the Un- unchained podcast you can find it on you know itunes or stitcher or whatever um and laura's great um you know she's been she's been doing her podcast for a number of years now interviewed most people in the space and laura is someone who spends all of her time um all of her time thinking and reading uh, about this, this technology. So she, she, she's great because, you know, she can talk at a level of depth that most, uh, that most people can't and really understands the nuances. So yeah, Coindesk, the block, um, the Unchained podcast is great. Love that. Okay, great. Um, and of course your newsletter, 30,000 feet on Substack, which I will yes. link to in the show notes. Um, okay. So I'm going to Right. I'm going to read some reader questions that because okay. they're very excited to have you on the show. There's a combo of sort of Bitcoin, crypto questions, DeFi questions. How can you use DeFi to make money? What is sort of an everyday use that would be useful to the average person on the street right now? Great, great question. Um, so currently DeFi is used by what I'll call like sort of the kind of the crypto crowd, right? Crypto like power users, right? These are people who already own crypto. They own a lot of crypto. And they are, they want to do something with it. I think something that's plagued, you know, this industry for years has been, okay, I own Bitcoin. I own Ethereum. Now, what do I do with it once I have it, right? Uh, I hold it. I can hold it as a long-term investment, which a lot of people do. I certainly do. Um, But, right, like I talked about with banks, right? You know, it's not very capital efficient to let your assets just sit there, right? You know, this is the equivalent of like putting cash under your, under your mattress, right? Or burying it in the backyard, right? Like, yes, it may be safe, but um, you could be making money with that money, right? You could be earning interest on it. You should be investing it, right? So the same way that you invest your cash, you can be putting your crypto to work. And DeFi provides an ecosystem of opportunities to put your your crypto assets to, to work. So you can lend them out, for example, to other people who want to borrow them, right? Well, who wants to borrow them? Traders, market makers, hedge funds, right? Um, they are borrowing assets and either either shorting it because they think the price is going to go down, right? Or they're just trading it because they want to borrow, they want margin and they're going to, you know, they want to trade more than they than they have on their own. So they're going to borrow some. Um, so, and the interesting thing about, um, the interesting thing about DeFi right now is that it is, um, it's almost a financial system that's completely separate from our traditional financial system, right? So there's like, there's a, there's a pool of assets in DeFi, right? And it's cryptocurrencies, right? And stable coins. And then you have the traditional financial system, which is like dollars and stock and commodities and stuff, right? And the interest rates in the traditional financial system are really low because there's, there's an excess of capital, right? There's so much money in the system um, that supply and demand has gotten out of whack, right? And when supply is higher than demand, right? Rates go rates go down. Um, so that's in it. And in, 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 in crypto, there's a huge disparity between the interest rates because, um, 
these are two, they are two like very separate systems, right? You would think that like the interest rates in crypto should mirror the interest rates in like the traditional financial system, like your bank is offering you. And the rates in DeFi are, are much, much, much higher right now because there's, there's isn't much connectivity between the two, right? They're like two totally different financial systems, right? And so supply and demand in crypto dictates the rates in crypto and supply and demand in the real world dictates the, you know, the interest rate you get like in your, on your savings account, for example, right? But those rates do not align right now. Um, and so, you know, I think for, for you know, one, one obvious sort of motivation for even just experimenting with DeFi is, you know, take advantage of some of the higher rates that are available, um, you know, with, with some cash that you're comfortable experimenting with, right? You know, so, you know, take $100 and, you know, buy Ethereum or a stable coin with it. And then, you know, lend that $100 out. And, you know, sometimes the, you know, the rates, you know, can vary between, you know, like five and sometimes like 50%, depending on the asset and how long you're lending it out for. And, um, you know, there is, I should point out too, it would be irresponsible for, of me not to mention this, right? But there is a little bit more risk when you're using DeFi because, right, you're not interacting with a bank. There's no FDIC insurance. Um, you know, transactions aren't reversible in most cases. Um, you know, you're interacting with a protocol on the internet, right? Um, and so there's no recourse if something goes wrong. You know, smart contracts can get hacked just like anything else can get hacked too. And so there is a little bit more risk involved, um, which is why I, you know, suggest playing around with small amounts of money if you're just trying to, you know, learn about it. Um, but these are all risks that I expect to to decline over over time, right? As these technologies, as they uh, become more mature, as they are better tested, like the longer they've been around, um, the longer they've been around, the more battle tested they are, right? Like Bitcoin's been around for, you know, 12 years now, and we just assume that it works, right? Like it's, we assume that it works because it's worked for 12 years. Um, and we assume it's secure because it's been secure for 12 years. Um, and I think the same, you know, that, that same sort of, you know, sort of principle applies to DeFi too, right? DeFi, a lot of these DeFi protocols have only been around for a couple of years, some even less than that, right? And so they just, they need a track record of working for people to trust them the more. And then there's a lot of stuff that you can do. You can, you know, test the code and things like that, which is, which is happening as well to get people more comfortable. So, um, so yeah, anyway, um, you know, that, that, that's sort of the, you know, the education I think should be the, should sort of be the primary motivation. But then once you get educated on it, um, you know, there are some fairly attractive, investment opportunities there as long as you are comfortable with the risk that you're that you're taking i mean that of course it will lead me nicely to the next question which by the way under the the context that this is not financial advice at all this is only for education yes i should have said that up front but so no, thank, no, no. You. thank you there will be disclaimers all over the place and blinking lights so <laughs> don't worry just let loose and don't worry um but what would you say i think everybody's curious what crypto should i buy or you know what would you put your what would you put your bet on at this particular moment? And and again, we take it with a grain of salt because we know this industry is changing quickly, of course. I read a great sort of financial advice book over Christmas this year called The Psychology of Money. Uh, my girlfriend and I both read it. Yeah, I assume you and you and yeah. your um, and your husband have read it too. So, yes. um, so Psychology of Money, amazing book. One thing that I took away from that in addition to like the importance of compound interest and some other things, right. Is that everybody has their own strategy. 
everybody has their own strategy. Everyone has their own goals, right? Some people are day traders and are just trying to flip something quickly, you know, in a 12 hour period to make a little bit of money. Other people are value investing and buying, you know, to hold something for the long term. Others are doing something in between, right? They're, they're actually, or they're saving for something very specific, right? Like I am saving and investing so that I can buy a house. Okay. Right. I'm not, I'm not saving for retirement, right? I'm saving for a house, which is five years away versus someone who's saving for retirement, which is, you know, 30 years away. Um, so your strategy dictates the decisions that you, that you make. And so, um, you know, my, my, any advice that I give is always, well, one, I, I try not to give investment advice, but if I am forced to, um, I always, you know, I always sort of caveat it with like, I need to know what your strategy is, right? Like if you are a long-term buy and hold investor and, and you, you actually understand and believe in crypto and DeFi, um, and you understand like, okay, you know, that, that this is going to radically change how one, it's going to change, like it, it, it already is new financial infrastructure, but it's going to radically change how our financial system operates and how services are delivered. Um, if you understand all that, then you are more likely to be comfortable holding for the long term, knowing that there's it, it's going to be peaks and valleys right in between them, right? Um, if you're someone who bought Bitcoin back in 2010, like if you look at the time horizon from 2010 to now, the chart is up and to the right, right? It looks great long term over 12 over a 12 year time horizon. But if you're but if you're living that day to day, like we've gone through lengthy periods of time where the price of Bitcoin has gone down significantly. And if you bought at the top of that cycle, you know, seeing your portfolio value go down, you know, 80% can just be demoralizing, right? And so like to hold an asset through those periods, you know, where you're down in the red, right? Like you really need to believe in it. You really need to understand it. Once you understand it, you can believe in it. And then once you believe in it, you are much more capable emotionally of, of riding out those things, right? And, and having a long-term view. Um, if you don't understand it or you don't believe in it, then you're much less likely to feel confident holding an asset that you just lost a bunch of money on because you know that in five years or 10 years, it's going to be much higher than it is now. So anyway, that's my general kind of advice here, right? Is, you know, if you're, if you are investing in the long term, then, and you really believe in this technology, then go buy something that A, you understand, and B, you believe is going to be around for five years or 10 years, right? Um, you know, if I, if I had to put my money on something, right, I would, I would look at the large DeFi protocols, um, you know, and, I'm, and, and, and for no other reason than like, you know, I think I, I, I described them earlier as like, these are just really successful businesses, right? Like they generate a ton of money. And so, um, you know, and DeFi is still very much in its infancy, right? So if some of these protocols are generating tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a month in fees, then like those are, those are fundamentals that I can, I can get behind, right? You know, that's, that seems like a really solid, those seem like really solid businesses to me, right? Even though we're just talking about smart contracts on a blockchain, right? Software programs. Um, so I'm really excited about, you know, DeFi protocols, um, as something that you can own and invest in, um, just like you would own and invest in, you know, Apple or Amazon, right? I, I, I really do think DeFi protocols will be some of the largest organizations in the world in like a decade. Um, and if, if you just think about it, right? Like they are, it's global, they're global financial infrastructure. Um, and even now, right? Like still, it's still very early on, but they're, they are, they are, they are, um, they do an enormous amount of 
volume and they generate a ton of revenue for, for users. Um, so, you know, if you believe in that, if you believe in DeFi and the technology and you believe in the trajectory, right, then, you know, those, the largest ones should grow over time, right? And they should be generating more money. Um, so, you know, I just, I, I think those are just, you know, very, they appear to be at least at the moment, very solid businesses, right? Um, and then, you know, things like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, I think are, um, you know, also like your staples for just people that want to hold something long-term and not worry about, you know, daily daily fluctuations. So Carlos asks, and this is sort of related, what altcoins are you most bullish on for the next one to three years? And what does your portfolio breakdown look like? My portfolio is, I mean, I, I, I've been in the industry for a while. My portfolio, you know, is, is mostly like the larger cap tokens, like things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, you know, the things I'm most bullish about are like, I, you know, I, just to kind of, just to kind of reiterate, right. Um, are, are the largest DeFi protocols. I think, you know, things like Uniswap and Compound and Aave and MakerDAO um, and SushiSwap, despite, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, tongue in cheek name, like is a, you know, is a really, yeah, is a really serious uh, project. Um, so those five, you know, and there are, um, if you're interested in just looking at a list and, and how big they are relative to others, right? There's a great website out there called DeFi Pulse. So D-E-F-I-P-U-L-S-E.com. And DeFi Pulse just has a list of all the, the DeFi protocols and then how much money is locked up in those, right? So you can kind of see like the, you know, the equivalent of like a, um, uh, sort of like, you know, the, 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 the gross deposits that people have, have, have put in those protocols um, to date. Um, and that'll give you a sense of just kind of, you know, uh, what the big ones are and, and what some of the smaller ones are. Um, so I'm, I'm most excited about, about those. I think those are going to be, um, I really do think that those are going to be some of the, just the largest businesses in, you know, a decade. The, the, and the fascinating thing is like, they don't have an executive team and like, you know, a board, right. They're just, they're, they're protocols. They're, they're, op, they, they're run in, in a fairly decentralized or managed in a fairly decentralized fashion. Um, and I fully expect that, you know, those, those DeFi, those, the tokens of those protocols will be owned by, and you're already starting to see this happen, right? Like hedge funds are already starting and you're seeing like other you know, funds specifically forming so that they can buy and hold as, as many of these DeFi tokens as possible, right? Um, so, um, I'm, you know, institutional investors will start investing in DeFi the same way that they're starting, they've started to invest in Bitcoin um, this year and last year. Um, so, you know, in the, you know, the, the ownership will probably look just like a, a public company, like a large public company, like Facebook at some point, right? It's like 50% held by institutional investors, like hedge funds and asset managers. Right. Um, and then the other 50% is owned by like the founders and, you know, early sort of contributors of the project. And then, you know, individual, individual investors like, um, like us. That is fascinating. Really cool. I'm excited. I, I'm seeing your vision of the future. Just one vision. <laughs> we'll see if it comes true. Just one vision. Okay. I bet on it. You know, I was in a Bitcoin conference in like 2013. That It was like at a dollar. I was so early and I didn't capitalize on it. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, it's okay. But um, that's why we read the psychology of money. I mean, I knew I knew it was a thing, right. but I, I just saw it plummet and go down and all that kind of stuff. But I love that long-term view that you're talking about because I think this is the direction things are going in, even if it takes, you know, a couple of years. So I love it. And then I have a funny question from a reader. Chad asks, do you think Dogecoin will ever be anything other than a joke and a meme? What's the deal with Ethereum? Why Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Why are these like the two main mainstream coins any money has value because enough people believe that it does right 
um, this is sort of like a, it's like a foundational sort of feature of money is like, you have to have a network effect, right? If you don't have network effect, money's not that useful because you need a lot of people all spending and accepting the same thing for it, for a, you know, a, a system to really work. Right. Um, and like the, the, the history of money, like the history, like the form of money, the history of that is fascinating, right? Like, you know, we started out with, um, you know, tr- you know, like barter economy, right? Like where you're trading like livestock and grain and wood and other things, right? Um, and that that was what represented value, right? Like things that we could use. And then, um, you know, uh, and then you know, s- some of the early you know civilizations, you know, started, um, you know, they would they would uh, you know they they're using metal to represent you know an amount of something, right? Um, and there's, there's great examples of like, you know, um, like island nations, like using like giant rocks as to represent, you know, their, their currency. Right. And so, you know, that rock out there is worth a hundred, whatever. Right. And when I, you know, when I sell my house to you, um, you pay me with your rock. Right. And like the rock doesn't move. It's just sitting out there in the water. It's so big. You can't move it. Right. But, but, uh, but now I own it and everyone knows I own it. And now I can use that that rock to, to buy a hundred of something else. Right. And so like, you know, um, this is called Yap, it's the Yap, Yap stones for, for anybody that wants to look it up. Island of Yap. Um, they had like a, a rock based currency system uh, that was really interesting. Um, and so anyway, money's evolved over time. Right. So we went from bartering to sort of, you know, metal and, you know, and, and sort of stone based things. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, now we have, you know, a cash, we, we ha- have a cash system, but, you know, 98% of the money in circulation is digital, right? 2% is cash and coin, I think. Um, so most money is already digital or virtual, right? It's just not managed by a blockchain. It's managed by a, a central bank system, right? So um, so anyway, why Bitcoin and Ethereum? This is sort of working my way up to this, to that, back to the question. Um, you know, um, cryptocurrencies have value because people believe that they do, right? Um, there's enough people that believe Bitcoin has value that there's a there's a market for it, right? And the market and the price in that market is based on supply and demand. If more people want it, then are willing to sell it, then the price goes up. If more people want to sell it than want to buy it, then the price goes down, right? Um, so supply and demand dictates price, and enough people believing it has value is what creates that that market, right? Um, so same thing for Ethereum, the token. Now the difference between something like Bitcoin and Ethereum is that. Bitcoin is a single asset blockchain, right? So it's a it's a ledger on the internet, just like I talked about before, but it only supports one asset, Bitcoin, right? Okay. So and 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 most of the like the first generation blockchains were single asset blockchains. They only managed one asset, one cryptocurrency. And then Ethereum came along. And because Ethereum was the first smart contract-based blockchain, uh, so, 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 so sort of like you could, like the DNA of the blockchain was a little bit different than Bitcoin, um, the way that you represented things on it was different. Um, Ethereum was really the first like, true multi-asset blockchain, right? So you can put as many assets, you can represent as many assets as you want on Ethereum. So whereas Bitcoin blockchain is like a very, it's, you know, it's a very sort of, um, you know, simple sort of single asset ledger. Ethereum is a, you know, it is a, it is a ledger, um, but it's a ledger for a lot of different assets and you can put smart contracts on it now, right? Like as we talked about earlier, right? Little software programs. This is what DeFi applications are, right? So now Ethereum starts to look more like a, 
like a like a global like financial computer almost right like not only is it is it is it managing the supply and ownership of a bunch of different types of assets but now it's also housing a bunch of little financial applications right all these defi protocols are on are are, are living on that ledger too um so it's it's just much more robust than a single asset blockchain like bitcoin um but like the the value proposition or the use case of the assets is is totally different too right like bitcoin is sort of analogized to digital gold right it's a it's a it's a scarce digital thing and gold is a scarce physical thing right so bitcoin equivalent of digital gold right but ethereum is you know when you are when you are performing transactions on the ethereum blockchain like you are you know let's say you're experimenting with all these defi protocols right your transaction fees that you are paying are paid in ethereum right the net for you to tra- for you to move things around on ethereum you have to pay transaction fees. And so your fees are paid in Ethereum. So Ethereum is, it was described, you know, in like the original white paper is you can think about it like gas for the car, right? If the Ethereum, you know, blockchain is the car, Ether, the token is the gas that keeps everything running, right? Um, Now people also buy it and hold it and expect it to go up in value because again, like the demand is increasing. Um, But it also has like a very real, sort of purpose and you know it it and it it, it um uh you know it pays all the transaction fees on the network um so um anyway that's the, that's the that's the thing with bitcoin and that's the thing with uh with ethereum what are your thoughts on nfts which is definitely the buzzword of the week do you have any opinions and can you give some background on what those are we've been talking about cryptocurrencies for most of this episode and um cryptocurrencies actually any currency right is a uh, uh, it's fungible and I, and fungible means it is interchangeable with any other unit, right? So a dollar is fungible, right? I can, I can swap my dollar for Elise's dollar and it's the same thing, right? No dollar is better than any other dollar. They both have the purchase power of a dollar. Anyone will accept your dollar and my dollar, right? They're, they're, they're interchangeable. They're fungible. Um, NFT stand for non-fungible tokens. So what's something that's non-fungible? Well, something that's unique. Well, what are things that are unique? Um, pieces of art, bottles of wine, uh, identities, right? Humans are like the quintessential example of something that's non-fungible, right? Every, each one of us is unique by nature. Um, so currency is fungible. Humans are non-fungible. What else is non-fungible? Real estate, right? Every piece of real estate on the planet is unique, right? Anything that is physical in the world is, is, is um, a, a lot of it is going to be, is going to be non-fungible. Um, so, you know, think about like, there are, you know, other things that people are trying to represent on blockchains, right? Like, um, uh, you know, your, 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 your degree that you get from your university, that's non-fungible. It's specific to you, right? Your marriage certificate, things like that are, are non-fungible assets, right? Um, so anyway, that's the difference between fungible and non-fungible. So NFTs, non-fungible, right? So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about unique unique things, unique digital things, right? And that's what's, that's what, this is what's so cool about just the concept of NFTs is that um, we can have something that is exclusively digital, but that's also one of a kind, right? And again, this goes back to sort of why blockchains are so powerful and why the internet needed something like blockchain to unlock all of this is that, you know, you think about, you know, any, any video or, song or uh image that's online right like none of that's an original right like the internet doesn't there's no concept of original on the internet right when you send an email 
you know, there's, you're not reading the original email. You're just reading a copy of the text that like, you know, the internet transmitted in the data packet, right? Like when you look at an image on Instagram, you're not looking at the original image, right? The original image is on the person's phone who took it. You're looking at a copy of the image, right? So um, the internet is just a, it's just a library of a bunch of copies of content, right? Anytime you consume anything online, you're just consuming a copy. NFTs are so amazing because like you can preserve the scarcity of this stuff and you can truly have like something that is one of a kind, right? There's only one of these and I can prove it because it's represented by a non-fungible token on a blockchain, right? That represents the sort of originalness, right? Or the uniqueness of this thing. And so when you, when you see artists selling digital art or you see artists selling, selling like uh, a unique YouTube video or a song, right? Like they are able to sell the ownership of that because we now have blockchains and non-fungible tokens that can allow you to like, you know, capture and and store like the unique nature of that, even though it's only digital, right? So um, this this was NFTs were not possible before blockchains because we needed blockchains to be able to you know um, to 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 create scarce things online. Um, so you know, I um, I think it's NFTs are amazing. Uh, I think long term because it allows you to put so many more things online, right? Like now we can put you can you can you can literally rep of intellectual property for that matter right and so you know we're putting currency online on blockchains we're putting you know financial assets commodities other things online now we're putting you know art and wine and intellectual property and you know ownership and whatever right online um you can put real estate online you can put your identity online you can put your you know you can represent your your uh, your diploma with a token, right? Um, now that we have the ability, right? So um, it just, it opens up the door to, NFTs are kind of Pandora's box, right? Like um, you can represent anything with a, you know, with a non-fungible token. Um, you know, the entertainment industry has sort of grabbed, grabbed onto it first, but um, like gaming was experimenting with it for the last couple of years too, right? Um, so any gamers out there, right? Like, you know, representing in-game items like a sword or a shield or a, or a helmet or something, right? Like that can be a, that can be a token that you can, that you can sell on a market. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, you know, I expect uh, gaming, the entertainment industry in particular, and like, honestly, any industry that revolves around like IP intellectual property um, where you're having to like manage those rights and like you want to, you know, they need to, the use of those things needs to be scarce because, you know, if, if they were just everywhere, right. Um, you know, the value, you would erode the value. So um, anyway, yeah, that's generally speaking, that's why I'm excited about um, NFTs. I think we're just scratching the surface. Very cool. Yes, I would agree. I'm excited to dig deeper into them. So, and also I'm curious, what do you think accounts for the bull run this year in this space? And is it different than the bull run in 2017? Bull markets are always a, um, a collision of multiple things happening. So, and it's usually a combination of uh, sort of technology evolving, awareness evolving, um, and um, user-facing applications also evolving so that you can use this stuff in different ways, right? But then all those things kind of converge at the same time. And when they converge, you get this explosion of not only like a value proposition, but also awareness in the market. And so what's happened, you know, what happened in 2017, uh, which was like really like, the, which is like, his, which was like the third sort of bull market in crypto. There were two previously. Um, 
but that one was caused by a couple of things. One, Ethereum first, launched in 2015, right? Smart contracts, you need that. And then um, token standards, right? Now we have, like I talked about, ERC-20 and ERC-721. So 721 are NFTs, ERC-20s are cryptocurrencies. Um, you needed uh, token standards because token standards make it so much easier to create new assets, new tokens, right? Once you have a standard, it's really easy. Before, when you want to create a new token, you actually have to like create a new blockchain, which is a ton of work. But because Ethereum's multi-asset and they have token standards, now like, you know, in a matter of minutes, you can deploy a new smart contract and create a new cryptocurrency. Um, so it brought the barrier to entry for new cryptocurrencies down to zero. This is what this is what opened the door to ICOs, right? If people want to, if companies want to raise money by selling a token, well, the first thing you have to do is build your own token, design your own token. And if designing your own token all of a sudden is now really easy, well, now that takes the that takes the work out of creating your own token. And now you can just create that token and sell it to, you know, sell it to the market, right? Take token standards out of the equation. Any company that wanted to, you know, raise money via an ICO would have literally had to build their own blockchain. Like most people don't know how to build their own blockchains, right? So anyway, standards like token standards totally unlocked the ICO wave because it, it made it so much easier to launch a token. Um, and, that, and, and so, so Ethereum, smart contracts and token standards, in my opinion, were, uh, were sort of the three forces that converged in 2017 to create that, that, you know, that bubble. Um, what's happened over the last three or four years? Well, DeFi, number one. Um, NFTs were actually a thing. NFTs really started to catch on back in 2017, right? Like during the height of the last bull market with CryptoKitties. That was like sort of the first game that experimented with, with non-fungible tokens. And, but that industry has been working really hard for the last three years, right? It's just not a lot of people have been paying attention. So um, there's been a ton of, ton of innovation in NFTs, right? Uh, and so you have DeFi working for the last three years, NFTs working for the last three years, you also have had a, um, you, we have a, a financial um, sort of situation globally, right? Where a lot of countries are injecting tons of money into the market in the form of stimulus to prop up the economy. Um, that may be, it certainly has a perception effect on the value of the future value of a dollar. And so people are in companies are looking at things like Bitcoin, right, that are not correlated with the market at all, or, or, or traditionally have not been um, not very correlated are looking at that as like an, an, an asset that they can transfer some amount of cash into, right, um, in the event that the dollar, you know, um, you know, suffers a, a decline in value. Um, so you're so so the narrative around Bitcoin has totally changed, right? It used to be a, you know, kind of this fringe thing that people would invest in. Um, and now it's something that, you know, large, uh, uh, large institutions are investing in for, you know, a treasury management strategy or a capital preservation strategy, right? And so I think, you know, um, whereas 2017 was very retail driven, right? Very retail investor driven, um, at least the price of Bitcoin for the last six months is it's largely been driven by institutions, right? Large hedge funds, large public companies like Tesla and others, right? Buying big blocks of, of Bitcoin, um, and so, uh, you know, the storyline's different, right? But so, you know, all these things are converging right now, NFTs, DeFi, and, you know, this, this you know, and, and, you know, the financial situation because of um, the pandemic, right, are all converging at the same time to create this, these circumstances that, you know, are, uh, that make these things, one, like more attractive things to invest in. Uh, but like the, the utility value of all of them is, has grown so much over the last three years because a lot of stuff has been built 
you know, while people weren't paying attention, which is kind of how it always is, right? So I'm so glad that you are here to share all of this incredible information with us. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's been fun. So is there anything that I haven't asked about that you would love to talk about or think should be highlighted? You know, this this might not be, a, a, you know, a sensational take on something, right? But I, I think um, education is so important, um, particularly in, you know, markets like this, right, where there's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of buzz about DeFi and NFTs. Um, you know, the media focuses on prices, um, which is inevitable. Um, you know, I think this is an opportunity for everybody, right, to like spend some amount of time, right, even if it's like a weekend, right, like spend time reading about this stuff and really trying to to understand it. Um, because if you are interested in investing, or you, or even if you are currently invested, um, understanding like the long term value proposition of all these things, one is it makes you incredibly that knowledge is incredibly powerful um, just to have in general, but two, it also makes you a much smarter and more patient uh, investor because, you know, just like the last 12 years, right, this market goes up and down. Um, and if you are, you know, someone who is, who is invested and wants to continue to be invested, right? Like being able to, being able to sort of ride that, being able to ride that wave, um, it helps when you, when you have done your homework and you do understand and you have a, at least some perspective on sort of where things are, are going, you're less, less susceptible to sort of day-to-day -day emotions at, at that point, which is really helpful. I think that it, that is great advice across the board. And that's again, why I'm so thrilled to have you on the show to promote that education that I think people need to dive into. Where can people find you? What can they expect to get from that newsletter overall? Would you say? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, AJ Beal, A-J-B-E-A-L. Um, and my, my link to the, to the newsletter is on my, my Twitter profile, 30,000 feet uh, spelled out um, dot substack. Dot com. A, a new issue of the newsletter, uh, I release it every Sunday morning. So good weekend um, reading. Really looking forward to doing this for the rest of the year. Like I said, I committed to, I committed to doing at least 50, 50 issues. Um, I'm having so much fun. I'm definitely going to keep, I'm definitely going to keep doing it. It's, it's the highlight of my, the highlight of my week. Um, and I talk about, um, I talk about sort of high level trends and themes um, in blockchain and, and crypto. Some are more technical than others. Um, recently it's been a lot about DeFi, but um, uh you know, I, I also touch on a lot of other topics too, because there's a lot of other stuff going on in the industry. That sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Wow. That episode was a goldmine of incredible resources and information. I'm still processing it, but I can't wait to get into DeFi myself. If you're ready to buy your first Bitcoin or just dive straight into decentralized finance, I'm going to include the list of resources from this episode on moneyselfmade.com. That's where you can find all of the cool links that Andy and I talked about. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming on the show. That was incredibly enlightening, and I'm really excited that we were able to have this conversation. I hope you found it very informational as well. We are available on iTunes as well as YouTube, so please leave a review or comment of what you think, which will help me make the show better for you. Do you have a special guest or a topic request? Let me know. What can we be doing better? Um, what are we already doing great? I love hearing all of your words of advice and wisdom. And thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you next week.